And just wanted to give you guys a heads up that if you are around in New York City, you have two chances to see me, Katie Halper. I will be emceeing a DSA costume contest and Halloween fundraiser Saturday, October 28th at 7.30. And that will be at Star Bar at 7.30. And Star Bar is located at 214 Star Street, Brooklyn. The costumes are not mandatory, but you are encouraged to dress as a socialist, communist, leftist, meme, whatever. And there'll be prizes. Also, on Monday, October 30th, I will be performing stand-up at a benefit for Jabari Brisport. Jabari Brisport is, of course, running for city council. We've had him on our show. He's a great guest, and he's a great uh, candidate. And that will be at Come On Everybody, which is at 325 Franklin Avenue in Brooklyn. And that's Monday, October 30th, and that's at 8 p.m. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. On today's episode, we talk to Norm Finkelstein. He's a political scientist, activist, professor, and the author of a number of books, including Beyond Chutzpah, On the Misuse of Anti-Semitism and the Abuse of History, and The Holocaust Industry, Reflections on the Exploitation of Suffering, and he focuses on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's the son of Jewish Holocaust survivors. You can hear the Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. You can also find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And please make sure that you become Patreon supporters of the Katie Halper Show. And to do that, you just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And you'll want to do that because it gives you access to bonus content, including extended interviews. We will be releasing our extended interview with Norm Finkelstein. We get into really controversial topics like BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanction, and why he considers BDS to be a cult. Pretty controversial, pretty unpopular statement, but a very interesting one. Thank you so much. We're really excited to talk to Norm Finkelstein on the Katie Halper Show. And we've been, I've actually been trying to talk to you for a while because I think you're one of the most important voices uh, on this issue on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and also on the kind of role of Americans and also Jewish Americans. And you're also, you are the author of Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assaults on Gaza. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, if I can add. But I am coming out next month uh, with a new book. It's my magnum opus, I think, uh, entitled Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom. It's a large book. It's about 440 pages. And it's a comprehensive analysis of the past decade. Uh, It's not about Gaza. It's about what has been done to Gaza, which is something different, in my opinion. Uh, Gaza has very little latitude for agency. Uh, It's simply been... imposed and inflicted upon uh, for reasons which have precious little to do with anything actually going on inside Gaza. 
and that by the end of this decade, uh, because of Israel's powerful lobby on the one hand and its ruthlessness on the other hand, um, most in evidence with the retraction of his UN report by Richard Goldstone, uh, Israel's neutered and neutralized the entire array, not just of political state organizations, but the human rights community, which at the end of the day betrayed uh, Gaza. So can you talk to us a little bit about the Goldstone Report, what it said, and how and why it was retracted? Well, on the first point, the Goldstone Report was an unusually comprehensive, on the one hand, and devastating, on the other hand, indictment of Israel's conduct during Operation uh, Cast Lead which ran from December 26th to July 17th, what Amnesty International called the 22 days of death and destruction. And the Goldstone Report concluded, among other things, that the uh, purpose of the Israeli assault on Gaza was to punish, humiliate, and terrorize the civilian population. Those were its three descriptives, punish, humiliate, and terrorize the civilian population. Once the Goldstone Report was issued, it evoked a hysteria, not a near hysteria, but an over-the-top hysteria across the Israeli political spectrum and from top to bottom of Israeli society. At one point, Prime Minister Netanyahu compared the Goldstone Report to Hamas Hamas, uh, rockets and Hezbollah missiles as one of the three biggest threats confronting Israel. Uh, The United States, uh, under President Obama, weighed in heavily on the side of Israel and at every critical juncture, both in public and also behind the scenes, twisted the arms of everyone within reach, which is, when it comes to the United States, the whole of the international community, twisted the arms of everybody in reach to block any serious consideration let alone implementation of the Goldstone Report. And then on a strange day, it was picked, namely April 1st, 2011, uh, Richard Goldstone dropped a bombshell in the Washington Post in which he effectively retracted his own report And he claimed it was because of new information that had become available to him since the issuance of the report. But that was plainly a pretext. It's easy to demonstrate by analyzing his retraction that uh, no new information had become available. 
And then the question, of course, arises, if it wasn't new information that caused him to retract the report, what did? And there we enter into the realm of speculation. I think the speculation points to the conclusion. Um, The speculation all points to the direction, though it can't be proven and probably never will be, unless Julian Assange gets access to some revealing emails, uh, the evidence overwhelmingly points to the conclusion that either he or some member of his family was blackmailed uh, into retracting the report. So beyond the usual kind of blackballing or blacklisting, you think there is something more? Yeah, I think, uh, to put it bluntly, the Mossad is a fairly efficient intelligence operation, and they dug Mm. up some dirt on Mr. Goldstone or some member of his family. His daughter is an Israeli citizen, and as you know, I don't have to tell you, everybody has skeletons in his or her closet, and it often doesn't even require that much um, ingenuity before a spy agency to dig up that dirt, and I think it was found either on Goldstone's person or a member of his family who then pleaded with him to retract the report. And Goldstone is not an anti-Zionist, right? Isn't he actually... No, what made the report, that's an important point, which I omitted, and it deserves uh, it deserves uh, underlining, underscoring. Goldstone was Jewish, is Jewish. He is a Zionist, a self-confessed Zionist. Uh, His daughter, or I should say a self-avowed Zionist, his daughter lives in Israel. She did what's called Aliyah, which means immigration to Israel. Uh, He sat on the board of trustees of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and in every manner, shape, and form, he was strongly identified with Israel. Right. So that's what, I, that's what made it so particularly damaging, right? Totally agree. Totally agree. It was not the content itself, although the content was remarkably comprehensive. It's a very large report. It wasn't the content itself, although, as I said, uh, it was an impressively compiled report, but it was the author. Right. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to tell you that, you know, you, of course, have this famous debate with uh, the reputable Alan Dershowitz, who I like to call one of the biggest Shandas, um, where you had an exchange back and forth, and Alex Coburn wrote about this at The Nation. And what's interesting is that he writes about your exchange with Dershowitz, and he says, now look at the second bit of the quote from Chicago, chastely separated from the preceding sentence by a demure three-point ellipsis. As my associate Kate Levin has discovered, this passage, parentheses, to cite a source from a secondary source, and parentheses, occurs on page 727, which is no less than 590 pages later than the material before the ellipsis in a section titled Citations Taken from Secondary Sources. I'm telling you this because one of my oldest and best friends is said Kate Levin, who was an intern at The Nation who discovered that. So, in all worlds. Yeah. I, I, 
I vaguely recall using an ellipsis to cover 500 pages. Yeah, maybe it's a new historiographical or political science uh, technique, really cutting edge. It's as if a book begins the, and at the last page there's the word end, and you write the dot, 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 end. She actually, yeah, she's a good old friend of mine, so I was very proud of that. I just thought we could talk a little bit because we are offering, thanks to Shuja Hader, who we talked to on the show, and Shuja works for Or Books, so we are offering this great package, which includes your book, Method and Madness, Ellie Valley's book, which is great. It's a great book of political cartoons called Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel, and Assuming Boycott, which is er edited by Karima Stefan. So can you talk to us about why you wrote and compiled Method and Madness? Uh, Basically because um, I don't think there has been a thorough record of what's happened during the past decade in Gaza there's a huge, voluminous documentary record, uh, number not numberless, but seemingly numberless micro-reports on what happened. And regrettably, and I'm not faulting anyone, but most people never get past reading what's called the executive summary of these reports, if they even read that, and they don't just read a synopsis uh, somewhere on the web. I am kind of old-fashioned about research. I do believe uh, not only is the devil in the detail, but the evil is in the detail. And unless you go past, say, the executive summaries and start parsing the reports themselves, you can't really get a handle on the magnitude of the disinformation, misinformation, and outright falsehood uh, that Israel disseminates via its vast propaganda, what they called Hasbara, uh, its vast propaganda uh, apparatus. Uh, So mostly what I've been doing the past decade or so is just chronicling the crimes in their details so as to provide an effective refutation to Israel's propaganda machine. There's so many uh, allegations which, after being repeated so many times from so many outlets, all of which are agencies and agents of Israel, the lies just become commonplaces. Hamas uses ambulances to transport weapons and terrorists. Hamas uh, uses civilians as human shields. All of these commonplaces, which on inspection, it proves there's not a scratch, not a scintilla, not a jot, not a smidgen of evidence to support. And in fact, the magnitude of the lies is so big that even things which I guess everybody across the political spectrum takes for granted, not just Israel's 
minions, but even I suspect people who turn, tune into your program, things like Hamas fires rockets at Israel. Hamas does not fire rockets at Israel. Hamas does not have any rockets. Hamas fires enhanced fireworks, bottle rockets at Israel. It's all a fantasy, this notion of Hamas rockets, just as Israel's um, Iron Dome defense system was, if one looks closely, it was also a fantasy. Uh, I don't have the time now to lay out all the details and all the facts to demonstrate these claims. And it's certainly understandable, comprehensible, why your listeners would react with a certain, with an element of incredulity to what I'm saying. What do you mean Hamas rockets were? Hamas had no rockets. What do you mean Iron Dome didn't work or was a hyped-up, high-tech fakery? Uh, I can only suggest read my book and then judge for yourself. And that book is Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assault on Gaza. Can you respond to, I think, one of the biggest, uh, kind of most damaging myths about Hamas is the human shield allegation. Can you explain your findings on that? There have been voluminous, voluminous human rights reports that have been issued since Operation Cast Lead in December 20, uh, 2008, up until Operation protective edge in July, August, 2014. I have read every word of all of those reports over a 10 year period, a decade, roughly a decade, a little bit short of a decade. There isn't a scratch of evidence to demonstrate Hamas uses civilians as human shields. Just not true. You can look at Amnesty's reports, Human Rights Watch's reports, the UN Human Rights Council reports, the reportage of uh, journalists across the spectrum. There is no evidence, none, zero. And this is repeated. I mean, I feel like I've heard this on every mainstream news source, cable news. Or let's take another example. Let's take during Operation Protective Edge, the claim was that Hamas constructed these terror tunnels, which were designed to attack, go, that went under the border of Israel and were targeting civilians in southern Israel. Uh, there's, there's an extensive commentary by now all of which shows, all of which shows that these tunnels were not targeting civilians. They were targeting uh, combatants in Israel. They never attacked civilians. When they came out of the tunnels, they engaged in combat with Israeli combatants. You can find that stated numberless times 
in the Israeli press, and you can find it in the UN Human Rights Council report on Protective Edge. It acknowledges the, the Hamas militants, when they emerged from the tunnels, only entered into con combat with Israeli soldiers. It didn't target civilians. It was just made up. That's interesting because you said that that was discussed, revealed, admitted to in human rights reports. Israel, you know, uh, the second point about the terror tunnels, right. you can find in the truth about them, you can find in various Israeli official uh, journalistic uh, documents. It's repeatedly attested to that those tunnels were not targeting civilians. What happened was, it was kind of ironic, when news of the tunnels began to break uh, during Operation Protective Edge, a lot of civilians started to flee. And then there was a problem. The civilians didn't want to return to their homes in the border communities uh, the communities that bordered Gaza. And then officials start to admit you really have nothing to fear because they're not targeting civilians. Wow. And it seems like there's more critical, Israel critical, Israel criticizing press in Israel than there is in no, the United I think States. That's a com I have to say, I, con I consider that just another myth. Hmm. Haaretz has a a salience in the West, but it's a tiny, fragile operation inside of Israel. It's the newspaper of those tiny enclaves in places like Tel Aviv, which still have a liberal, uh, a, a liberal cosmopolitan orientation. But Israel has moved very far to the right, even by its own um, not elevated standard, mm -hmm. and the press, the media, uh, overwhelmingly is in tune with the, the the national ethos, which is very far to the right now. Uh, there was a time when you could say there were Labour Party newspapers and journals and magazines and. Which and also to the left of the Labour Party, uh, the Mapam uh, and various other groups. That's all gone. And this notion that there's a lot of dissent in Israel is a. Um, I think it's it's another myth. Uh, people like Gideon Levy from Haaretz, who is a, an authentic, honest, courageous voice in Israel. He has to walk around with a bodyguard. Mm. It is an unsafe place if you tell the truth there. I'm not saying everybody is liable for assassination, but it's an unsafe place. And the number of honest journalists at this point, you probably can count on the fingers of two hands. It seems like, you obviously know this way better than I do, it seems like Haaretz is... So even if it's a speck, it seems like it's less marginal a 
a newspaper oh, than the newspaper? marginal. Oh, it is? Okay. What would it be the equivalent? What's its equivalent in the United States, would you say? What would be its equivalent in the United States? Um, it has the kind of audience now that's the equivalent of something like the New York Review of Books. Mm. This cosmopolitan, intellectual, enlightened, liberal audience. It's sort of like it would be the house organ of the Upper East and West Side. Right. I'm from the Upper West Side, so I get that. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. You write in the preface of your book, Method of Madness, you say, Palestinians are under neither legal nor moral obligation to desist from using armed force against Israel. Nonetheless, it is this author's contention that nonviolent mass resistance, both in Gaza and by its supporters abroad, still offers the best prospect for ending the illegal siege and occupation. Armed resistance has been attempted many times and, notwithstanding its heroism and nobility, has failed to budge Israel a jot. The time is ripe to attempt militant nonviolent resistance, or so it is argued in the ensuing pages. This was in September 2014 that you wrote this. Has anything changed for you in your position? No, except that um, none of these undertakings uh, well, certainly not nonviolent mass resistance. It can't unfold in the absence of a mass. And right now, the Palestine struggle is in a dormant stage. Uh, the people there have given up. They, there is, uh, truth be told, uh, aside from some isolated uh, isolated pockets. There's no longer any resistance. The people have been worn out. They have been wearied. They have been betrayed. They've become cynical. They're no longer given to collective action. It's the, the prevailing mentality is every man for himself. And in that in that moral ambiance, uh, there's no possibility of nonviolent civil resistance. And also, I should add that Gaza has been so completely pulverized that there's no possibility of so-called armed resistance either. Uh, the people of Gaza will not abide another Israeli assault. Hamas recognizes it. And now it's basically, and I'm not saying this in a pejorative sense, but it's basically cooperating with Israel to keep the border, its side of the border, quiet. Because it knows the people cannot abide another Israeli assault. So unarmed resistance is not on the table and neither is armed resistance on the table. So what do you think will happen? What can happen? And, you know, it it's really interesting because your position, which is, I think, very brave and not that popular for whatever reason, which we can get into later, but you're not morally condemning armed resistance. You're condemning it on a strategic... No, well, there's another point. 
I'm not legally condemning it because the, the international law allows people living under occupation and struggling for self-determination to use the armed force to resist the occupation and to struggle for self-determination. That's the law. You might not like the law, but that is the law. I go through the law very carefully in my forthcoming book. The law is very clear in those points. So it's not just a moral question, it's a legal question. Legally, they have the right to use force. However, uh, I don't think it's a prudent political strategy. It's proven a disaster. Why? The expression has it, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. This is not pudding, uh, unfortunately. This is, uh, this is death and destruction. But for three times, Israel and Gaza and Gaza went to war 2008-9, Operation Protective Cast-Led, 2012, Operation Pillar of Defense, 2014, Operation Protective Edge. In each of those uh, engagements, uh, Hamas's principal goal was the same, to lift the illegal, immoral, inhuman siege of Gaza. They failed all three times. The siege is still there. They achieved nothing. So you are in this interesting position where, you know, you legally and morally are not condemning armed resistance, but you're saying it's not a good strategy. It's it's an ineffective political strategy. Right. But you're also, you're kind of in between these different political factions or sides or orientations because you are criticized both by people who support armed resistance and people who support BDS, and also, of course, people who see any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic or, for whatever reason, you know, reprehensible, repugnant, whatever. So you, you don't have a lot of kind of ideological and political allies in some ways. I think there's a difference between what you might call the ideological, politically committed, um, those who are ideologically and politically committed in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, And then there's a a broad public uh, and also even people who are concerned about what's happening but don't have this kind of ideological, political uh, conviction. I think most of the people, my experience has been when they hear me out, they say what I'm saying is sensible. People living under an inhuman, illegal, immoral siege, if they, if armed force could enable them to end the siege, they should be able to do it. Thank you so much, Norm Finkelstein. Well, I appreciate the intellectual and youthful vigor of this conversation. And also, I most appreciate the fact that you sound eminently sensible, which is... Not so easy to to aspire nowadays. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show and to hear the rest of our interview with Norm Finkelstein, where he talks about why he rejects BDS please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Also, please 
Follow us on Twitter. I'm KT Halps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Gabe, my co-host, is Gabe underscore Pacheco. The hashtag is KT Halps Show. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. Please like us on Facebook and rate and review us on iTunes. That's really important. Please rate and review us on iTunes because that really helps us get the word out about the show. The Katie Halper Show is produced by Florence Burrow Adams with help from Josh Bregman. And our theme song is by The Ballet.